Years ago, my mentor, Leighton Ford, was speaking on a panel at a conference with Rabbi Harold Kushner, the author of the best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Both Leighton Ford and Rabbi Kushner had tragically lost their sons. And partway through the panel, Rabbi Kushner turns to Leighton Ford and asks him the question, why is it that some people go through really bad experiences, tragic loss, and yet they somehow survive and are able to recover while others never get over it? Well, Leighton leaned into his microphone and said, I don't know. We could ask a similar question. Why is it that some people with faith go through painful loss and yet are able to stay with God and others go through a similar experience of painful loss and lose their faith in God entirely? I don't know the answer to that question. We are concluding our series called Resilient Faith Today, and we're going to be looking at a character named Job who goes through staggering, catastrophic loss. And sometimes his faith is up, often it is down, but he stays with God. His life does not give us a definitive answer as to why some people stay with God in the midst of their great pain. But his life does give us some clues as to what characterizes a resilient faith. In the book of Job, in the opening verse, we read these words. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. In the opening words of the book that bears his name, we're told that Job lived in the land of Uz. Now, we don't know exactly where Uz is. We do know that it was a place east of the Jordan River, somewhere in the Middle East, but we don't know its precise location. We don't know exactly when the book of Job was written, and it has this timeless quality to it. We read that Job was blameless and upright. This does not mean that Job was perfect in the sense of sinless. It does mean that he was a person of integrity, that he reverenced God. We also know that Job was a prosperous entrepreneur. The passage tells us that Job had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. We also know from the scriptures that Job had this wonderful family life. He had ten grown children, seven sons, three daughters, and they loved to open up their homes to each other and host one another with, with, uh, with parties. So Job seems to have this blessed and charmed life. And then the scene shifts and Satan enters into the court of heaven. Now, the Bible, as we would expect, affirms the existence of a transcendent power that is good that we, many of us, call God. Most Canadians, according to polls, believe in the existence of God or some kind of higher power. 
Fewer would believe in the existence of some kind of spiritual evil. But according to the Bible, as there is a God, there is also a transcendent spiritual force of evil called Satan or the devil. And Satan enters into the court of heaven and engages God in a kind of conversation. Satan says, your supposed servant Job seems to be serving you. He goes through the motions of serving you because you pay him so well to do that. It benefits him so much to be seeming to be serving you. But if you allow your servant Job to suffer, if you allow me to afflict him, he will curse you to your face. Well, the living God has so much confidence in Job's character and faith that he gives Satan permission to afflict Job. The scene shifts back to earth. Job's at home. He hears a knock at the door, and he wonders, hmm, that's odd. I wasn't expecting anything from Amazon Prime. (laughs) But he walks to the door, opens it up, and standing before him is a policeman. And so Job is taken aback, and the policeman says, People have invaded your land, marauders, and they've taken your donkeys and oxen with them, and they've killed your servants who attend to your donkeys and oxen. Before this message has time to sink in, there is another messenger by the policeman who says, a powerful storm has bolted from above and has destroyed your sheep and the shepherds. And before Job has time to process this message, there is a third messenger standing beside the second messenger who says, your rival tribesmen have invaded your territories and they have gone off with your camels and have killed the shepherd of your camels. And then there's a fourth messenger who's there who's out of breath and says, Job, your your children. And Job says, no, no, not my children. And the man says, your children were all gathered together in one of their houses for a party. A tornado struck the house, collapsing it, and none of your children have survived. None of them are alive. So Job goes through four catastrophic losses, one after the other. And then a little bit later in the book of Job, Satan afflicts Job's body. Job breaks out in these terrible itches. He has open sores all over his body, ulcers. He's feeling this deep wave of depression. His vision is failing. His teeth are rotting. He is weeping. His bones are eroding and his skin is blackening and literally falling off. Some scholars believe that that Job is experiencing the disease, elantiasis. How does Job respond to this terrible suffering? Well, initially, after some of his losses, amazingly, Job simply falls to his knees and he cries out, Naked I came to this earth from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He praises God incredibly. 
Like a mother whose child, whose young child is pinned under the vehicle because of an accident and is able to summon incredible strength and momentarily lift the vehicle off her child so her child can roll to safety and then collapses. So Job, after his initial crises, is able to summon a kind of supernatural strength and in the midst of his anger and pain, praise God. But then we see that Job tailspins. And in Job chapter 3 and following, Job cries out and says, I would have been far better off if I had died at the day of my birth, if I'd never seen the light of the sun. And then in, in Job chapter 9, Job says, God, you, you destroy both the blameless and the wicked without any discrimination. And then Job says in Job 19 verse 7, Though I cry for help, there is no justice. And so from the very depths of his being, Job utters these complaints against God and says, God, you are not governing the world with justice. You have not given me justice. And as we go on in the book of Job, we see Job engaging in dialogues with three so-called friends of his who say, Job, the reason that you are suffering as you are is because you must have sinned in some way. And your complaints are simply making you even more guilty. Job protests and says, I am innocent. And if you just read the poems, the dialogues in the book of Job, it's hard to tell who is right and who is wrong. Job's friends are Job. But at the end of the book of Job, God speaks and says to his three friends, you were wrong. My servant Job was right. And so, yeah, Job basically gets the call that he needed because <laughs> he's probably feeling really bad. And, and when God speaks, he does feel vindicated. He is vindicated. Job has been uttering complaints and accusations against God with flared nostrils and a clenched fist. And yet, God does not condemn Job. Job, in his anger, in his pain, in his desolation, seems to always be turning toward God. And one of the things that we see about people with resilient faith as we've looked at folks like Jacob in the Bible and Moses, Daniel last week, uh, Craig spoke on Esther so powerfully, that in their adversity, in their pain, though they can grow discouraged, they're turning toward God, turning toward God, turning toward God. Dr. John Gottman is probably the foremost authority in the world on being able to predict whether a married couple will divorce or stay together. In a matter of just minutes, if he is listening to a married couple's honest conversation and honest interactions, he can tell, he can predict with more than 90% accuracy whether they will divorce or stay together. Dr. Gottman conducted an experiment in which he followed newlyweds for six years and, and he noticed this that when couples, married couples, had an opportunity to connect, meaning uh, when one of them made a bid for a connection, when they'd gone through a good experience and, and, and had an opportunity to turn to each other and celebrate or had gone through a hard time or 
had a fight and had an opportunity to come together. Among couples that divorced, they only turned toward each other one third of the time. Whereas couples who stayed married, who stayed together, when they had an opportunity to connect, were turned toward each other nearly nine times out of ten. So Dr. Gottman concluded that couples who stay together turn together, turn toward each other when they have the opportunity. And people of resilient faith who stay with God turn to God when given the opportunity to do so, whether in good times or in hard times. And so if you are experiencing pain, and if you live long enough, you eventually will, and sadness or anger, turn to God in that sadness and anger. Utter your complaint to God. Even shake a fist at God. God can take it, and it may help you process the pain and come to terms with those things in time with God. Near the end of the book of Job, God asks Job a series of questions like, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth and flung the stars in space and the angels sang for joy? Job, do you know how to speak so that an eagle takes flight or a hawk soars? Job, do, do you know when a, a mountain goat gives birth in the Himalayas? God asked Job all of these questions, and Job is dumbfounded, and he says in Job 42, verse 5, My ears had heard of you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And here Job is not repenting from the sins that his so-called friends accused him of. He wasn't guilty of those things, but he was repenting, meaning turning from an attitude of self-pity to one of self-surrender. He doesn't understand how the universe runs. He doesn't understand the ways of God. But in the face of mystery, he chooses to trust. He turns to God and chooses to trust. Rana Nowak has been part of our 10th Mount Pleasant morning communities for a long time. Faithful participant. Her husband, Michael, is on sound today. He's also been very active, as have their teenagers, Sabin and Gibson. They're part of our youth program here at, at 10th. And Rhonda's story is really relevant for our teaching today. And so I've asked Rhonda to come and share part of her experience with us. So uh, Rhonda Nowak, thank you. God is good all the time. When I told my husband, Michael, that Ken was speaking on Job and asked me to share my story, we looked at each other and laughed <laughs> and then had this uh-oh moment, <laughs> wondering if perhaps there was going to be another knock at the door. You see, in 2019, I lost my job in a restructuring that felt very personal and unjust. In 2020, I took a contractor role at a startup. Their financing ran out during COVID and shorted me about a half year's wages. In August 2020, I was diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer and started a year-long treatment, uh, including radiation, chemotherapy, and the surgery to remove my rectum. Afterwards, I experienced lower anterior resection syndrome, which continues to interfere with the daily functioning of my bowels. My small business was threatened with a lawsuit, uh, besmirched on social media, 
and one of my retailers was intimidated by a thug that was asking for my address. I started experiencing extreme fatigue, and after about six months of tests, was diagnosed, or it was chalked up to depression. It was hard to think and write, and my new work as a freelancer felt even more precarious. And last month, I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease called lichen sclerosis, which will require lifelong treatment and monitoring by a specialist. It's been one thing after another, and it's been hard. When I got the cancer diagnosis, I remember asking God, do I really have to trust you in every aspect of my life? I already knew the answer. I had no other move but to trust him. But let me be clear, I wasn't trusting him for a particular outcome or to make it all go away. I was trusting him to be with me, to be with our family, and I was trusting his sovereignty over the entire situation. I had wrestled with God years before and come to these understandings. Life is not fair. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen to good people. Christians don't get a pass on suffering and death. And somehow, despite the mystery of it all, that God can be trusted. God is good all the time. Having said that, I grieved deeply. I petitioned God daily, hourly, sometimes on a moment-by-moment basis for his mercy, his strength, his comfort, his healing, and his peace. I immersed myself in the Psalms And I read Romans 8 again and again. I enlisted the prayer team at 10th and my Christian family and friends to pray for us. My worship was crying out to God. I didn't ask why me or or blame God for allowing this. I asked for his help and mercy. How do I prepare my family for what might come? How do we face this in a way that doesn't frighten our children or make them question the goodness of God? How can I bring glory to God whether I live or die? For me, bringing glory to God meant sharing my my diagnosis, treatment updates, and everything that was going on for me physically, emotionally, and spiritually. In every update, I would declare that God is good all the time, and I would share a scripture that God had impressed on me. I sent my updates to believers as well as to family, friends, and former colleagues who aren't believers. Before treatment, I wrote this. Throughout this time, God has graciously directed my scripture readings in themes that flow from lament to gritty hope. I was reminded this week in my readings in Deuteronomy 31.8, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I love how I always seem to find a scripture that's fitting for where I'm at, how it lifts my mood and builds my confidence and trust. While this has been a difficult season, it has been full of spiritual growth. And for that, I'm grateful. During my radiation chemo, there were two weeks where 
I was in excruciating pain, and I wrote this long lament. It's much longer than this, <laughs> but I'll give you the small version. I've gone into the basement while everyone has left the house and sworn at the top of my lungs. There's really no substitute for the F word. It didn't really help like I thought it would, though. So instead, yesterday, I started declaring my mantra, his grace is sufficient for me, to convince myself that it is, despite how it may feel in any one given moment. Yes, I'm in pain. Does that change my opinion of God and his love for me? Absolutely not. But it's hard to think of anything else in those pain moments. Before my surgery, I wrote this. Over the last six months, the entire journey thus far, I've been awakened afresh by the reoccurring theme that I am not alone. When my wind, when I start feeling low, I make a cup of tea, steal up to my dressing room, light a candle, settle into my rocking chair, warm up under my electric blanket, and turn to the Psalms and other scriptures, often Romans 8. When my wind winds to possible scenarios, I consciously invite God into that picture and imagine him with me in that scenario. I often lay on my bed in the dark and have the most unvarnished, soul-bearing, out loud prayers of my life. And when I seek God in these ways, I eventually come away feeling peace, knowing that the creator of the universe is with me. No promises of a particular outcome, but a strong reassurance that God is ever-present and ever-loving. As Romans 8, 37 and 39 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now fast forward to my latest diagnosis. I have asked why, and I've complained. Really, Lord? Enough already. Hasn't my character been refined enough? Do I still have more to learn? Is this really necessary? And if I'm completely honest, I'm annoyed with God. But I have learned to express that to him and to be honest with him. I don't need to pray in a way that I think he wants to hear or that I think will somehow increase his likelihood of granting the outcome I want. There's no pretense, and there's no formula. Just honesty and trust. And at the end of the day, like Job, I know that he is God, and I am not. I know that he loves me, is with me, and is for me. And I will still declare that God is good all the time. Thank you, Rhonda, for speaking so honestly to God and for sharing from such a deep place with all of us in, in such an authentic way. We and Rhonda 
know something that, that Job did not when he was in the pages of his story, so to speak. Job sensed that God was unjust, that God did not see, that God did not care, that God was not engaged. But we know from our vantage point, having read, if, if you've read the book, the beginning and the end of the book of Job, that God did see, that God did care, that God was engaged. And if we ever doubt that God sees, God cares, and God is engaged in our life, and when we're in pain, as Rhonda said, it's hard to focus on anything beyond our pain. Let's look at the one to whom Job ultimately points. Job was a relatively innocent sufferer and points ahead to the God who was born as a human being that first Christmas, given the name Jesus, lived a perfect life, and then suffered terribly. Job suffered outside of the gates of his city at a garbage dump. He experienced social ostracization, great physical agony, spiritual oppression. And Jesus suffered outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. He was rejected, so social pain. He experienced excruciating agony on the cross in spiritual pain as he mysteriously bore our sin in his body so that we might be forgiven and redeemed. And if we ever doubt in the midst of our suffering and adversity that God cares, that God loves us, simply look to Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Scripture tells us in Romans 8 in a famous passage of Rhonda's, he that is God who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him, if he gave us his most precious gift, freely give us all things? If God gave us that which was most important to him, he will also give us all things. Never doubt as you look into the face of Jesus Christ that you are loved Believe, know, like Rhonda does, that you are not alone. Finally, in the book of Job, and I won't go into great detail here, everything in Job's life was restored by God. His physical health, his social connections and honor, his material well-being. He was even given more kids, though, of course, his new kids wouldn't completely replace the kids he had lost. And the scriptures tell us that if our lives are in the hands of God, that one day, either in this life or the next, he will restore everything to us. We've been looking at Hebrews 11 in this series, and we've seen how those people of faith were looking ahead to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. They were looking forward to their heavenly country. And as millennia later, Julian of Norwich would say, they knew all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. If you will turn to God in good times and in hard times, if you will trust God in the face of mystery, in the face of the things we do not understand, if you believe with Rhonda that you are loved and cherished by your maker and that all things will one day be restored, 
you will not only survive, but you will be a person of resilient faith. And as Rhonda said, quoting the Apostle Paul, you will be more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Let's pray together. In the presence of God, I invite you to speak to your creator. If you're going through good times, if the boundary lines are falling for you in pleasant places, thank God. Express gratitude. If you're going through suffering, adversity, or a loved one is experiencing a time of pain, freely express your anger or sadness or complaint, your lament to God. God can take it. And it's good to name it. And finally, if it's your desire, pray, God, like Rhonda, help me to trust you. Help me to trust you. And to be able to say in my spirit, you, God is good all the time. May it be so for us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.